Thank you, Heather and, and worship team. Just leading us into God's presence. Uh, yeah, sometimes we come uh, inattentive, and sometimes we just come just needing to meet with God, hearing from Him, having uh, maybe the foundations have been cracking in our lives, and we just need, uh, we need God to show up in, in new and fresh ways. Um, just a request, if there is anyone that uh, speaks Ukrainian at all, uh, I will need to know that. We have uh, somebody who's just been inviting uh, a family, and uh, the one pe- person in the family knows some English, but the other is not so well, and yet they would like to be able to come to our church and to get connected. And so to help bridge that gap, a language gap, if you happen to know any Ukrainian, you uh, let me know afterwards, that would be greatly appreciated. And just a brief note, a half sabbatical. Uh, I know some of you wish, boy, I wish I got a sabbatical. Uh, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. I had a half last year because that's all we could fit in. It was a half or nothing. And I can tell you, I was just so drained at that point. And then I got COVID right before it that totally wiped me out. So that's how I started in deep recovery, hacking my way for the first couple of weeks but it was a great gift, and I really appreciate that. And I, I, I appreciate that this year as I go into the other half, the six weeks, I don't feel that same sense of exhaustion. I'm looking forward to it. But, and one of the things, just to be in prayer about, uh, as, as elders, we had, I think I'd mentioned a little while ago that we had kind of a, a morning, a Saturday morning visioning time together. And one of the things uh, on our radar is that we've been in conversation with, uh, with a Chinese church who's actually the same denomination as us, who actually had roots going back 30 years ago. They used to to meet in our church. I didn't know that connection. And uh, we're just having some early exploratory conversations about merger. So, uh, and just, they would like to be able to have, you know, a congregation speaks English that could integrate their, the children and youth that come to their church, which aren't necessarily a lot at this point, but that kind of integration And so we are having those conversations. So if you hear rumor of that, yes, we are talking and and praying, having some great conversations with them about that. And so I want to also be doing some visiting uh, other churches and look about how do you, what are some of the models of not just, you know, that we are separate congregations, but integration, especially when we don't really know one another that much. We've been meeting with some of the leaders we've been getting to know. So that's one of the things that I'm going to be doing, some visiting and reading and, and meeting uh, over sabbatical as well, as well as some time just for some future planning and direction. So I will continue to pray for you uh, in that time and appreciate your prayers. So let us pray this morning. Oh Lord, uh, one of the songs that we have learned in this Lenten season is my soul will wait for you. Lord, we read in your word in Psalm 23 that you, one of your specialties is you are able to restore our souls. That is the part in us that is the very center and vitality of our being. And Lord, the part of us that sometimes grows extremely weary and feels depleted and exhausted. And yet, Lord... You are the one, Lord, who is able indeed to restore 
our very core of our being. And Lord, you do that, you say, by leading us beside still waters. Lord, in the, and you also, Lord, lead us to green pastures because you are our good shepherd. And Lord, I'm reminded as well as our guest speaker last week, James Crable, shared with us, Lord, windows into the global church. Lord, there are many places where our brothers and sisters are meeting, Lord, sometimes in the midst of uh, great persecution, sometimes in the midst of great challenges, sometimes in war zones. And I pray, Lord, that you would be the shepherd, the good shepherd, Lord, who guides your people here and around the world, Lord, also through great challenges. Lord, we know that some of those have have come to our part of the world, coming, Lord, at times with great trauma, but, Lord, also with great faith. And so, Lord, I pray that as we get to know one another more, Lord, that there would be a sharing of stories and also of gifts, Lord, for you give each of your people gifts to share with others, whether it be a story, Lord, whether it be a song, or Lord, whether it be a great need that we can share together in common. Lord, as we open up your word together this morning, we pray, Lord, that we, you would be our great teacher and guide. Amen. Palm Sunday. Throughout the centuries, Palm Sunday has been a a day of celebration, a day to, to wave palm branches and sing joyful songs of praise like the crowds did in Jerusalem that day when they sang, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. As a child, I always looked forward to the singing and joy of Palm Sunday, and especially because we often got to be involved a lot more in the worship than we usually did. But I also found the whole celebration rather confusing, given the grand celebration of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and how the crowd cried out then for him to be crucified on Friday. I mean, talk about dashing a kid's expectations. I found this sharp and dramatic contrast impossible to understand. Even in the years since, I've found myself wondering how the tide could turn so quickly and dramatically from such celebration and support for Jesus to such murderous hostility against him. Could Professor Timothy Geddert be right when he cautions us, he says, to be careful how and why we celebrate Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem, lest we fall prey to the same errors of the crowd when Jesus didn't meet their expectations? Hmm. Let's uh, turn to Luke chapter 19. We'll read Luke's version of this. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, that is, a parable uh, that he told about, uh, about a parable of the ten minas or talents, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to 
bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Expectations. We all have them, don't we? Mm-hmm. I remember a, a prof professor in a, in a class I took on marriage and family, and he taught us a formula. He said, happiness equals expectations over experience. Now, if you think about that formula, right? Okay, the, how high are expectations? And if our experience doesn't match up to it, we're in a deficit here, he said. And the problem of inflated or misguided expectations. Well, Luke gives us a window into what the people were expecting from Jesus when he entered the city that day. They were cheering because if we look back at verse 11 in chapter 19, it says that they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, I was thinking of that and thinking about, you know, in Shrek, he, they're always looking for my happily ever after. And I thought, this is it. They were expecting our happily ever after is finally coming true. Now, what we call Palm Sunday was originally the beginning of the Jewish Passover celebration. The time, the week-long celebration when they recalled the great exodus from Egypt in the past. And they anticipated a new exodus from the current tyrant. In fact, so many people came to Jerusalem for the Passover that Josephus tells us that the population of Jerusalem would double or even triple during Passover. Wow, think of that. If, like, if that many people came, that's more than the Olympics, right? Coming to Vancouver. And the people brought with them the hope that the Messiah would come very soon, so soon that they would leave. They left the temple door open just in case the Messiah would come that year. We have great expectations in our lives. I'll never forget the uh, anticipation and preparation for the birth of our first child. 
We had the nursery set up and clothes beginning to hang up in the closets in advance. In terms of preparations for this moment, already back as far as chapter 9, verse 51, Luke has been telling and reminding us that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Luke frames most of Jesus' ministry as a long journey up to Jerusalem. Now, only a kilometer out of the city, on the opening day of the Passover feast, Jesus stops. Up to this point in the journey, he's been walking. But this entrance is extra special. This needs to be an entrance fit for a king. Jesus has actually just told a parable about uh, someone who comes and returns now as king. Doesn't go very well in that parable, which is probably why Jesus told it. Now, if all of the attention that Luke gives to certain details, I don't know if it struck you as odd, but Luke gives about five and a half verses on instructions for getting a colt. And only a few verses on the actual entrance. Kind of strange, right? So why? Why does he do that? Well, these details are obviously important because the stage is being set for the king's royal visit to the holy city. Jesus' specific instructions to his disciples about uh, finding and bringing him a colt which no one had ever ridden. That was required for the kind of kingly coronet, coronation anticipated and orchestrated long ago by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah, had uh, that's where it is quoted from. And when we compare Luke with the other Gospels, we see that Matthew explicitly quotes this verse from Zechariah at this point to make sure that his listeners, his readers, get the point. And Luke makes a similar point. If you notice, he, he replaces, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He makes it explicit. It's a royal psalm, but he makes it explicit. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That is in the song of praise in verse 38. And so not just any animal will do. Selecting a colt that had never been ridden, that means one that has been set apart for sacred use. That's what it means. Because the king is going to ride this one, it can't have been one for ordinary everyday use. It's got to be special. And Jesus was deliberately then giving these instructions because he was fulfilling the prophet Zechariah's script. This is how the king will come into Jerusalem. This is the ancient script, if you will, that Zechariah, when the long-awaited Messiah king would ride into Jerusalem, he will come not on a war horse, as many of the Romans did, but on a donkey colt. That is a symbol of coming in peace. And they all knew that. And while acquiring the colt for Jesus, if the disciples encountered any opposition, they were to tell the owner, the Lord needs it. Well, why would that be important? Because that's what a king in authority has the authority and power to do. And if you are a true subject and they say, and somebody comes to take it and they say, well, the, the Lord, the coming king needs it, you're going to be like, wow, this is special. Because I'm going to be able to say afterwards, this colt, Jesus rode on it. See, years ago, my son was, uh, went to Menno Simon Center in, Va in Vancouver. 
It used to be a convent, that place, and then it was bought, and uh, it became a place where students lived. And my son's claim to fame was that the small room that he was given, it was one of the smaller ones, but years ago when Mother Teresa had visited, guess which room she stayed in? Yeah, see, now you think this is important. So they're going to be like, yes, you can use the colt. Okay. He rode my donkey. Well, the next scene moves from these preparations to the procession with the disciples spreading their cloaks on the colt and then putting Jesus on it. With the whole crowd of disciples joining in, spreading their cloaks on the road. A scene typical of other Old Testament coronations. When King Solomon and King Jehu, the scenes were similar. And their song of praise was one God's people often sang, a song of ascent, on their way to a festival in Jerusalem, especially for the Passover. Because it was a song of victory, a hymn of praise to the God who defeats all his foes and establishes his king and his kingdom. And so surely this was a, a triumphal entry fit for a king, right? Or was it? Most of us miss what is missing from Jesus' so-called triumphal entry because we do not know how a ruler or royal figure or dignitary was supposed to be welcomed into an ancient city at that time. A visit, a parousia, it was called in Greek, by a royal person or other dignitary was a very special occasion, and there was a script that needed to be followed. Special features, kind of like if we have a birthday party, right? There's going to be like invitations, decorations, you know, cake, and different things, right? And as a dignitary approached a city in that day, all of the leading figures of the city were supposed to go out to meet them in advance, the social, the religious, and the political leaders. They would all go out to meet this celebrity. And all the people would proceed in hierarchical order. That's the most important people, and, and they would follow. And they would be clothed in, in festival clothing and rejoicing, rejoicing greatly to, to greet the esteemed visitor. Often the city, too, would be adorned with wreaths, and the people often would be dressed in white garments, and there would even be choirs or there would be singing and dancing this festive atmosphere and once the dignitary had been met out in advance with by the special delegation from the city they would pause and there would be speeches of welcome by the very important people select members expressing praise and gratitude for the character nobility and great works of the visitor and how fortunate the city was to have experienced their reign and their visit to their place and after this, the special guest would be then escorted into the city by those who had gone out to meet him. And the royal visit often concluded with a visit to the local temple where there would be sacrifices given. Now, think back to the expectations of a birthday party. What if you went to a birthday party or it was for you and all of the elements were missing? That is, no special gathering, almost nobody showed up. No singing happy birthday, no decorations, no cake, 
No candle, no cards or gifts. My wife is smiling at this because one year, you know, for my birthday, I even got a phone call and she said, you know, what kind of cake would you like? And I said, oh, chocolate, 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 chocolate cake. And I got home and we had, the, you know, a little birthday party and the cake came out and it was white, white, white cake. It was a very unhappy birthday at that moment. <laughs> All of this just to say, you know, uh, from a cultural perspective, Jerusalem's response to Jesus' kingly entrance, as one writer put it, it should be characterized as an appalling insult. An appalling insult that was very serious indeed. Jesus' untriumphal entry Because instead of going out and greeting them like they should, notice what the dignitaries in Jerusalem are doing. Instead of going out to meet him and praise him, they are actively trying to bring the whole thing to an end. Stop. The Pharisees say, Teacher, rebuke your, your followers for saying and singing your praises. While the whole crowd, notice, of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices from all the miracles they had seen. It doesn't say the whole crowd does. The whole crowd of disciples. Maybe the whole, seems like the whole crowd as a whole does not. And we will hear from that crowd later on in the week with loud shouts insisting and demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their shouts will prevail. Like the wicked servants in Jesus' preceding parable. you got to go home and read that. They will make it known, we don't want this man to be our king. That's the line in the parable in Luke 19, 14. And Jesus, of course, knew all this. That's why he told the parable right before this to the crowd. He knew that their jeering would be far, far louder and longer than their cheering which helps explain his unusual response in verses 41 to 44. You see, because as the celebration is going on, it says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. In fact, that word, weep, is often translated as wailed, grief-stricken, Jesus was visibly grief-stricken. Now, this short section is unique. Only Luke has it. But it gives us an amazing insight into what Jesus was thinking and feeling in response to this untriumphal entry. N.T. Wright suggests that Jesus' tears are at the core of the Christian gospel. Hmm. They are an essential part of Jesus' message because they illustrate how God's judgment is uttered through sobs and tears. Longing for people to turn. Earlier, in, in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus had used a, a tragedy on that particular occasion of Pilate's violent response to a Galilean revolutionaries. And he had, he had killed them and he had uh, just done some awful stuff. 
And Jesus says, and they like, did, were those guys extra special bad? And Jesus doesn't answer that question, but he says to the people, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And on that occasion, he means repent in terms of turning from this path that you think will lead you to peace. And turn instead to God's way. That is, repent of trying to use war to make peace. And turn to me and my way of peace instead. And he will say to Peter, all who draw the sword, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Same kind of principle that Jesus is is talking about. And this is why he says, if you, people of Jerusalem, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, shalom in Hebrew, full peace with God, with one another, with creation. If you had known what would, make, what would bring you peace, but now he says it's hidden from your eyes. It's like you've got blinders on. And in addition to the to obvious tragedy of the situation, there is deep irony here because the name Jerusalem has the word peace right in it. Yaru Shalom. City of peace. It, Jesus is grief-stricken that the city of peace and its inhabitants are totally ignorant and blind to the things that make for peace. Remember last week, our our guest speaker, James Crable, he told the story of the friend who who was in a hurry at an airport and he went to the KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and he said, quickly, I need a bag of food in here. And, uh, you know, they had coleslaw, I think, and buns or something. They didn't have any chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken, we don't have any chicken. His response is like, but chicken is what you do. And I thought of that. But peace, Jerusalem, is supposed to be what you do. It's right there in your name. And you're totally clueless about the things that make for peace. And you're giving people all the wrong guidance. And the primary evidence of the leaders and people's blindness and ignorance is their failure to recognize and welcome the prince of peace. To failure to recognize him and to embrace him with open arms. And they should have known because Jesus had had repeatedly demonstrated at this point throughout his ministry that he alone could bring shalom, peace to all kinds of people. And even as Jesus will hang on the cross He will pray for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he will also welcome a repentant criminal. Luke has each of these stories next to him, and he is inviting this repentant criminal to join him in paradise. Friends, Jesus knew that the taste of repentance and reconciliation is far far better and more lasting than the taste of revenge. And so the writer, later writer to the Hebrews will say, for the joy set before him of seeing true reconciliation and peace woven into people's lives and into the world, for that joy set before him, he endured the cross and all of the shame and appalling humiliation. In order to give everyone the opportunity of a lifetime 
to find eternal life and lasting peace. Peace with God, with one another, with the world. So we come to the applications. And I think one is, please don't let this Palm Sunday pass you by without embracing Jesus as your king, as your prince of peace. As interested, I'd never got the connection before. One of the cities prior to Jerusalem that Jesus comes to is Jericho. It's on the way. And there is actually someone who is out in advance to meet Jesus. In Luke, at the end of chapter 18, there's a blind beggar. Some call him Bartimaeus, but that just means son of Timaeus. It just means he didn't have a name. He's just the son of Timaeus, that blind beggar. And he hears that Jesus is coming. And you know how he responds? Jesus, son of David, which is a messianic title of the Messiah. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there were some in the crowd who joined him in this. No, they said, shut up. You're embarrassing us. What are you doing? And you know what he responded? He's like, oh, no, sorry. No, he doesn't. He says he shouts all the louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He is knowing he gets who he is, and he knows he desperately needs him. And maybe you're feeling like that blind beggar today. Jesus can hear you. Jesus, Prince of Peace, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the other person that responds in the next chapter, chapter 19, is a very rich man. You've heard of Zacchaeus. He was the little man, a wee little man, but he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. It says he was the... Uh, tax collector, actually, of, a, of one of the leading districts. It means he was filthy rich. And he desperately wanted to see Jesus. And in another way, he was ostracized because that guy is a crook and a criminal. And Jesus says, I come down, I want to meet in your house today. And Zacchaeus opens up his home and he has totally changed in his heart. He repents. He turns around from having fleeced people. He says, I want to give back and even more. I want to try to undo the damage that I have done. And I want to follow you and your way. And those are the kinds of responses that Jesus should have got. And that he invites you to make. And I think also... As Jesus' followers, both personally and collectively as the church, we need to keep returning to him and committing ourselves not only to him, but also to his way of peace that he taught and embodied. It was interesting, I discovered what happened to a city if they didn't do the proper royal welcome to a dignitary. And it's very, there's very few stories because the consequences were so severe. The response, for example, of the Roman magistrate Virginius Rufus, when the city of uh, Visontio failed to properly welcome, you know what he did? He got his army, he came back, and he laid siege to it, and he leveled it. Wow. So what does Jesus, the king, do when he gets totally snubbed by Jerusalem and its elite? 
He says there will be consequences, but he does it through grief, and he's like, that's not what I want for you. I want you to turn. And we know that the common response was to call, even the disciples, when one of the Samaritan villages didn't go out and welcome Jesus, invite him in, and said, we don't want you to come here. Remember James and John, they said, hey, master, should we call down fire from heaven on them and burn this place to the ground? That's not the kind of leader Jesus is. Not at all. Jesus did not back down publicly from speaking the truth and calling people of all kinds to follow him, but he loved them and he prayed for their repentance, for their change in, of heart, their change of mind, and he prayed for that, Luke will tell us, right to the very end. And I think in an increasingly uncivil society, we need to embrace and embody the way of Jesus all the more. This is the way. Amen? Amen. In a moment, uh, Rob is going to come and lead us in communion. Uh, let us first pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you know that there is a way that leads to life. And only a few find it. Because, Lord, we need you to open our eyes and open our hearts to truly see you for who you are, the Prince of Peace, and your way as the only way that makes sense at all. Because, Lord Jesus, yours, your way of, of peacemaking is so much sweeter and more lasting than, than revenge. And, Lord, we live in a world and our own inclination of our hearts and response so often is to mirror evil or hatred or bitterness or disrespect than, Lord, to embrace your way. Lord, grant us the humility that we need to, like that blind beggar, cry out, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, come into our hearts anew, Guide us in your way. Amen. Amen. Just wanted to, to let you know before we go that uh, next Sunday we're going to be having uh, a baptism. Uh, Shannon Kine is going to be entering the waters of baptism and some of us are going to be meeting uh, tomorrow night. And maybe God has been putting that upon your heart as well. Uh, please, talk to me about that. We've also got a couple people that are going to be uh, joining the church officially as members. And uh, we can do that in coming Sundays as well. So if you're interested at all, if you, uh, please let me know uh, about that. And also, um, if you would like prayer, immediately after the service, I know Yosef uh, is going to be available, others from the prayer team, and uh, just up at the, at the, to my left, to your right, up at the front, I encourage you to, to take advantage of that opportunity. I know a number of us meet as well at 9.30 in the mornings. We have a prayer group that meets just uh, across from the Welcome Center there. And if you'd ever like to join us, 9.30 to 10, we, uh, we pray together each Sunday morning. Oh yeah, and the choir, this is your last practice before Easter Sunday, so after the service.
I want to leave you with the words uh, Peter gives at the very end of his letter. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. And God's people said, Amen. 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 Let us go and serve the Lord.